Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Night Shift with Andrea Up Late. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It took us a minute to get here, but uh, we are back. It's been another week, and the show goes on. So if you are a new listener, Night Shift is a true crime show. Keep that in mind if little ones are around. Um, But if you're here, I think you know what what you're getting into a little bit. Tonight, we have the wonderful pleasure of having B.C. Sanders, co-host of the Disruptors podcast with B.C. and Ski on. Um, If you have been listening, you know that we rotate co-hosts just about every week. Sometimes it's another podcaster. Sometimes it's um, a family member of, uh, you know, someone affiliated with the crime we're talking about. It can be all sorts of things. We change it up. So uh, we are happy to welcome B.C. tonight. (laughs) Here, here, here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like sorry. I'm, yeah, scrambling around. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> well, good, good. You're looking good. It's good to see you tonight. So tonight we have a case, guys, straight out of Detroit. Um, we kind of talk about all sorts of different things. This is a bit of a different show. This is a lot of corruption collusion, all the all the big words that have been in the news recently, but nothing related to any of that. In fact, it all stems from one police department in Detroit. So we are going to get to it. Um, let's see here. I'm going to move you out of the way for just a second. And we are going to talk pop culture. Um, let's see here. So 1984, what do we have for pop culture? What do you guys think? Uh, let's see here. Sorry about that. Okay. What do you think is, are some of the big things in 1984? Because I pulled up some and I will tell you what I knew, you know, I was, I was there for it. You know, we all know my age at this point. I was there for it. A lot of amazing things happened in the eighties. I didn't realize that basically all of the amazing things happened in 1984. All right. So let's talk about what that looks like. Here's a little list. If you're looking at movies alone, movies alone uh, is everything you need to know. We have Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We can stop right there, right? We got Gremlins. We've got Karate Kid. We've got Footloose. Ghostbusters. Red Dawn. Terminator, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Beverly Hills Cop, Police Academy, The Never-Ending Story. It goes on and on. Guys. Sixteen Candles. Yeah. <laughs> Some jerk I know calls it the never-ending boring. I don't. Oh. I don't subscribe to that. But someone I know says that's a that's a pretty boring movie. Sad movie. <laughs> Do you like it? What's your thoughts on the Never-Ending Story? <laughs> oh. Ah. Uh, okay. I, I. I mean, it's a movie. Uh, the, the never ending story on a rainy afternoon, tomato soup, full on sadness. It's a sad, depressing movie. I'm sorry. Did you like it as a child? Uh, did I like it as a child? That was the question. (laughs) No, I just told you no. Uh, it's terrible. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, he I'm does. Not, I don't like to be mean. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. 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 Hey, Davey. Hey, Carly. Casey Anthony defense team, silly Mander. Hey, everybody. Uh, you guys, if you're new, we say it every week, but if you're new to the show, it is a live show. Hence, so when it gets a little funny sometimes, such as BC Sanders might have completely just moved studios in the last two and a half minutes. Um, but we do engage the chats here and there. And uh, and then, you know, and then moving forward, you listen to the whole show on wherever you stream your wherever you stream your stuff. We air on the Andrea Uplate YouTube channel. Uh, BC, let me take a break for a second and give you a second to tell everybody who you are and what you're from before we get into the show. Yeah, uh, I'm lucky enough to have a show called The Disruptors Podcast with BC and Ski. Uh, a buddy of mine that I work with or worked with on two different units, uh, gang units, one on the street level, one on the FBI task force. Uh, we worked together at the time and got to do a lot of fun stuff, but got to also doing silly side talk about music, about life, and just became pretty good friends. And so we just stuck with it. And then eventually, started our own show and we interview guests that are either in bands, maybe uh, cops that have done some pretty cool stuff. Uh, we've interviewed a former uh, reformed Nazi skinhead. Uh, we've got another one lined up um, who's uh, reformed or has, you know, changed his ways, but I got a former drug dealer lined up for guests. We've done um, just a lot of different stuff that we have fun with. Yeah. And now we're kind of going full bore and should be putting out one episode a week and got our YouTube channel up and running by the same name. So okay. just barely starting to put some videos up. Awesome. Well, yeah, you guys have got some great content for sure. So I look forward to hearing more of that and we can move right along. So you said, okay, we ended with, you loved the never ending story. <laughs> um, I'm trying to be nice. It's not, it's just sad. It's a sad Okay. Movie. 16 candles. You good with that? I'm good with that one. Yes. Um, you guys, Beverly Hills Cop, that actually plays a key role, believe it or not, in the case we're talking about tonight. Uh, who do we have that are listening from Detroit? I uh, put that in the story earlier because that's where mm. that's where it's at. Uh, Silly Mander in the chat says Disruptors is my favorite podcast. Oh, so there you, you go. You got you some love, BC. <laughs> All right. What about some music? We've got When Doves Cry by Prince. You want to give us a line of that or no? You. Uh, I'm going to refrain from that. I'm, okay, I can't okay. sing Prince. Yeah. I can sing some other stuff though. Like nineties country. <laughs> you know it, you know it. That's, that's my new hidden talent. I mean, so we got the heart of rock and roll by Huey Lewis. We got sister Christian purple rain, um, thriller by Michael Jackson round and round by rat. All right. Let's see here. We talked about this earlier. There's everything in 84. We can make the whole show out of this, but we have, um, Hulk Hogan, Winning his first WWF championship. What you got for that? Uh, I mean, Hulk Hogan's the man, but I was the NWA, AWA, uh, WWE kind of fan when I was a kid. So Rick You don't Flair have a good hey, horse. brother, for us? Hey, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Little Hulkamaniacs. Yeah, I, I can't really do Hulk Hogan. I'm sorry. He is uh, He's pretty squared away, though. We've got the Where's the Beef slogan from Wendy's. Uh, <laughs> Came out in 1984. The Space Shuttle Discovery made its maiden voyage. The Cosby Show, Night Court, Miami Vice, and The debuted on primetime television. Dukes mm -hmm. of Hazard, Magnum P.I. You guys, it's insane. Family Ties, Silver Spoon, A-Team. 
Transformers, Fraggle Rock, Inspector Gadget. I mean, I, I can't. Cabbage yeah. Patch Kids, G.I. Joe, Transformers. All right, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. We'll be here all night with that stuff. Um, <laughs> it was a good year. Oh, my word. Yes. I wasn't a twinkle in my daddy's eye yet. I was I was uh, 18 years old. You're in college, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was in college. All right. <laughs> Class of 84. Uh, <laughs> Did you mention your favorite movie or no? The Neverending Story? No, no. (laughs) Red Dawn. Did you mention Red Dawn? You know what? This time, I didn't. Um, (laughs) Red Dawn came out in 1984 also, which is a fantastic, a fantastic uh, movie. Uh, (laughs) One of my top four. Good. That's where that lands, I believe, right? All right, guys, if you have not heard of this case, you might have heard of Richard Wershey. You might have heard of Richard Wershey Sr. You might have heard of White Boy Rick. That is how he is most famously known, although at this point in his life, he would like to change that. Um, But let's get into it. So Richard Wershey was born on July 18th, 1969. From now on, I will be calling him Rick for the purposes of this show. That's what he goes by, and his dad has the name Richard as well. So just to clear up any confusion, uh, his parents were Richard Worshi senior and Darlene. He was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. we got a few listeners. I know silly said that, uh, silly was, uh, she's a Detroit represent right now until the age of five. Rick's childhood was pretty uneventful. Um, but around five or six years old, his parents got a divorce, which in and of itself wouldn't be so, so, crazy but his mom so his mom moved away so she moved out to some suburbs a bit away from where he and his father and older sister lived more more in downtown Detroit um there we'll get into it a little bit but Rick's memory of his father currently when he speaks seems to be a bit softer than what we've learned kind of that was going on back then um there were whispers of domestic violence between his mom and dad um and in fact, later in in terms of meaning much later, we have some affidavits and some court documents that do show that there was some domestic violence going on in that home. And that seems to be why mom left uh, after the divorce. So in many, many interviews, Rick has said that this was the most difficult time in his life. He vividly remembers his mom leaving. And he says that from the ages of like five to 10, which we all know, guys, on this show, we like to talk about the why behind the crime often. Like, you know, how did this transpire? We do a lot of nature versus nurture, even if we don't use those coined phrases. Uh, But, you know, why do people get into the things they get into sometimes? Well, we know we have a huge separation, um, a traumatic separation of bonding here when his mom leaves the way he talks about it. Now we can tell. So from five to 10, his mom is gone again. These were very dark times for him in terms of emotionally. He has said that around age 10 or so he kind of got into sports. So that gave him a little bit of light. He enjoyed baseball. Uh, his dad would take him to and from ball and his grandparents kind of stepped in and, helped raise he and his sister in his mother's absence. All right. So around, let's say, I think around 12, 12 or 13, um, he finally has the opportunity to go live with his mom for a while and her new husband. I'm not sure what happened at home. You know, if, if 
she felt stable enough or in a place to let him or if things were not so great at home with dad that he wanted to go. Uh, that's kind of lost a little bit when you when you read about this. But either way, she he goes to live with his mom and her husband. He talks, you see a light in his eye when he speaks on this time because he talks about them being in the suburbs. He said it felt like a whole different world. He would do yard work. People are walking on sidewalks. Uh, you know, he just really enjoyed it. He fell in love for the first time, some puppy love. He got his first little girlfriend at that time when he was living with his mom. So he really associates everything fondly for about 18 months to almost two years. It wasn't very, very long that he was there. Uh, but between like 13 and 14 years old, Rick does move back to his dad's house. Again, that's lost on us. We don't know exactly what transpired other than he will just say, uh, you know, I don't know. I've become more of a softy and softy and softy the more I read about this case. But uh, he will say with definitely a certain inflection and in voice that this was the most difficult thing he did was leaving his mother's house to go back home. And he doesn't necessarily say he doesn't necessarily say that he was sad because he didn't want to be with his dad, but he did want to be with his mom. He said that those years she was gone, uh, you know, he remembers them as like just this terrible longing. Like he knew he had a mom and evidently she wasn't that far away. He just wasn't with her. So he hated that he had to go back. But when asked why he went back to his dad's, he would just simply say that his mother's husband and he did not get along. And when pressed further, he'll say that he, that mom's husband kind of pushed her around and hit on her some, you know, we talk about these kinds of things and like victim mentality and different things like that we can become, um, accustomed to or think that we deserve or what for whatever reason, many, many reasons, depending on the circumstance, but it would make sense that she could be with someone who's doing this to her. It sounds like that's what she came from. Um, so now at the age of 13 to 14 years old, very, very formative years, he's being separated from his mother again to, to go back home to his dad. BC, I know that you talk a lot about the psychology of things. When you guys are talking, do you have anything to add to to that? Yeah, it's this, the sad thing is when you have that void or that absence, a lot of guys, I'll say guys just because we're talking about him, sure. but will they'll move towards a family unit or people who are doing things like selling drugs or people who will take him in, show him a little bit of attention and like sadly uh, get him involved in criminal activity, which at times at you know young age, like 12, 13, 14, 15, Frontal lobe isn't fully developed. Kids aren't thinking long-term. Yep. They don't understand what they're doing could put them in jail for a long time. Right. Um, yeah, and like you said, just the the idea, and I think this is going to be a recurring theme throughout this case, is the idea of being accepted, being wanted, and it's pivotal when he's being detached twice. At And you have different developments of childhood, you know, very different developments at ages five and six versus 13 and 14, uh, both of which will can, like you said, play a huge factor moving forward as you become an adult. So he moves back to dad's. Uh, and again, you know, when he talks about it, he also he'll he'll harken on his little girlfriend. You know, he really had uh, at least he has a very, very fond memory of his time there. However, it actually worked out. So. He goes back home with dad and uh, it's kind of life as usual. 
Dad's a gun seller, uh, known kind of on the streets as a bit of a little hustler. Nothing too extreme in terms of law breaking or anything like that. I think he's just kind of flying under the radar a little bit. Rick will say that his dad was, quote, not a Ward Cleaver kind of guy, but he was present. He said he took him to his sporting things and, you know, was there for him. But um, things are kind of changing on the home front a little bit. Now it's the early 1980s. You guys, what do you remember if you are as ancient? No, I'm joking. I'm, I'm actually very young. I'm spry. I'm a spring chicken. But if you happen to be around or hear anything about the 80s, uh, one thing that will come to mind for school-age children would be Nancy Reagan and the D.A.R.E. program. Okay, so if you're not familiar, D.A.R.E. is the program that is uh, an acronym for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. It was plastered everywhere. Uh, Nancy Reagan, if you're not familiar, for some reason was the first lady to President Ronald Reagan. Uh, every first lady, if you didn't know, this has kind of an initiative. Their Their job is to kind of find a project. It's like their Eagle Scout project is what the first lady gets. They have one project and they have to get it done in four years. Um, I never considered that before, but I do think now that first ladies are treated like Eagle Scouts. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this sounds that like. That makes sense. So, yeah. so instead of building a bookshelf or a bench at the local park, Nancy Reagan decided to take on the war on drugs. So she would travel uh, elementary schools, middle schools, uh, and I guess high schools as well throughout the throughout the um, country and preach the dare resistance program. And so basically the idea of that was just say no. And I'm sure you've heard that colloquially at some point, just say no. Yeah. Your brain on drugs. This is your brain. You guys, if you don't remember, we had commercials and it would show someone, you know, you remember this BC at the frying pan and they'd like, they'd like show an egg and they'd be like, this is your brain. And then they like splatter it in a sizzling frying pan. It would go everywhere and it would say, this is your brain on drugs. And so like this was, yeah. you know, it was all the, the scare tactics, the whatever to get you to not uh, do drugs. And, you know, we were talking about this the other night, but I totally forgot yeah. it until I started looking at this case. There was the one commercial you guys that are listening, or if you're in the chats, tell me if you remember this, where they show a lady like from the side, you can't really see her face and she is snorting a line of cocaine. And it just says like what other people do isn't your problem. And it's kind of like that kind of grayed out color, you know, and it's kind of dreary. And then, uh, and then you see like this man and woman, like saying goodbye to little Johnny as he climbs on the school bus. And as he's running up the school bus, the bus driver turns around and it's the lady, that was snorting the coke and it says, you know, like, or does it? And it's like, you know, don't, don't, don't like all these kinds of commercials. But this is when, <laughs> yes, exactly. Silly. So this is when, um, again, the war on drugs was becoming into full effect uh, across the country, particularly in cities like Detroit at the time. So you're looking at early 80s. Um, we've, we've discussed this before, but this is like drug charges were being viewed, you know, and, and I think looked at more unfavorably than, uh, violent crimes and things like that. What do you, what do you have to say to that BC? Yeah, that, that era, um, you started to see the peak in the mid to late eighties of homicide rates. You can kind of do the correlation with drug like cocaine, but really when crack hit, it took off. Everyone started fighting for certain plots of land because at that time, everybody knew to drive up to a corner or to a store 
where people were posted up and buy crack. So as people were making thousands and thousands of dollars, if you go up and shoot somebody and kill them, you just take over their block. It's the same as countries invading other countries. So it was an epidemic. A lot of people don't remember that, but yes, that yeah. was that was the drive to try to to try to stop the the drug trade to drive down the violence. Yes. Exactly. And that's exactly what they were doing. Detroit was absolutely not immune to this. So, you know, for better or for worse, I understand it. You talk often about proactive policing. You talk about and I think that there's a way to be proactive. And I mean, I guess you don't know what you don't know. Right. You do what you do in the moment that seems like the right thing. I think this case put such a bad taste in my mouth that it's tough. Again, we're this many years later. And so, you know, it's easier to say. But I do have a little quote here, a blurb from. Uh, it says there's a Rand Corporation study of Detroit drug abuse in that era cited emergency room statistics indicating cocaine ingestion by smoking was around 3% in 1983, but 76% by 1989. The same Hmm. study noted Metro Detroit narcotic arrests grew from 9,000 in 1986 to nearly 16,000 in 1988. So two years later, the arrest doubled from nine mm-hmm. or almost doubled from 9,000 to 16,000. So we do see um, both sides of the fall. We see the arrest made, but we also see the hospital admissions. So, you know, people were getting ill, people were dying. Uh, this was bad. So, um, you know, that that's where we're at. So that kind of sets the scene. If you put some of those TV shows and movies and music in the background that we talked about earlier, think about Nancy Reagan and her little red dress telling you to just say no. And then, and then you've got these statistics. So it was a pretty yucky time in terms of drugs in some of these cities like that. So now it's 1984 and we've got Detroit's drug game off the rails. No pun intended. So how do Worshi senior and junior, the father and son become involved? Uh, Well, enter political corruption and the town's leading drug family. All right. We now have the Detroit FBI seriously interested in the cocaine wheeling and dealing of the Curry brothers, C-U-R-R-Y. That's um, a set of brothers there in town. They were an east side gang of suspected traffickers. So they are slinging coke at trafficking levels and they are the the big dogs in town. So Johnny Curry, he's going to be the one we speak of um, most here in that family. He was the leader. He was married. You guys get your little flow charts out or your family trees, okay? And he was married to a woman named Kathy Volson. All right? This is a good show to take notes on, y'all. The niece of Mayor Coleman Young. So we have the mayor of Detroit, Coleman Young. You'll hear his name a lot. His niece was Kathy Volson, and she was married to Johnny Curry, the head of this drug ring in Detroit. So we already have the mayor... We don't know yet whether or not he wants to be involved, but he is involved in this stuff. He is in these circles. Um, That Mayor Coleman Young, he was self-proclaimed as the, quote, head MFA in charge for 20 years. So is that what you want your mayor to call himself, BC? No, no, I don't. I don't want anybody to call themselves that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. The late... (laughs) Okay, so the mayor's brother-in-law, Willie Volson, he was Kathy's father. All right. He had been a major figure in Detroit's underworld for many, many years. 
He started as an illegal gambling racketeer, and he just moves on up, y'all. He moved to dealing heroin in the 70s, then coke in the 80s when that got hot. Um, the FBI wanted to know if Young had any connection with to this drug dealing, Young meaning the mayor, to this drug dealing of his brother-in-law and his niece's husband, John Curry. Um he equally had a distaste for the FBI. So the FBI was on to, well, as much as they could be in the moment, the local DPD, right? Detroit Police Department. There was some weird corruption that they knew of even back then. So they had been kind of on their tail for a while. Well, flip the script and Mayor Coleman Young had a huge distaste for the FBI. He called them stool pigeons. He didn't like them. He would actually talk a lot about them being white, particularly. He didn't like that. Um, there was just a mutual distaste between the feds and the local police department and, and not just police department, but local government there in Detroit. So some of, um, some of mayor young's loyal allies had been arrested over public corruption, including his longtime police chief who was convicted for stealing police funds that were meant for narcotics enforcement. Mm. Mm. Um, so it gets a little deep in the weeds there with uh, just a lot of layers, a lot of layers of yuck happening. So Mayor Young was actually a target of the FBI for suspended investigation for suspected corruption. And he had been on the FBI radar since 1952. So we're into 1984 now. So for 32 years as he's coming up and now he's ultimately oh. mayor, the FBI's had their eye on him. But we all know government works quickly. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Ooh. Um, mm. it's only been three decades, BC. Gosh, that's why, a long, uh, uh, that's a long time for corruption. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I didn't work the case, but that seems like a very long time. Mm. Um, in the <laughs> chats, I won't, um, I won't get, I won't engage in the chats too much while we're going live, but silly Mander, uh, it's a listener we have that is actually kind of from the area and is in the chats here. Uh, let me know. Throw it up here. If you know about this case, you may or may not have. I feel like you're pretty um, well-versed in some of these things, and you may. And then we have another listener that says this sounds like a druggy version of the Murdoch clan, and it does. That's a great description. Uh, like his daddy and his granddaddy and his uncle. It's exactly <laughs> kind of the same. So back to the Worshies. Okay, so now you get a little bit of that political climate, kind of what's going on there. I will tell you that by the end of this show, um, I very honestly don't necessarily have a better taste in my mouth for the local FBI there than I do for the local police department and mayoral department and things like that. So uh, while one seems like it should be better than the other, when we start this, I'm going to let you come to your own conclusion on that. Um, so Richard Worshi Sr. was trying for his kids, all right, but luck was not falling his way, nor were really his own decision making like he he didn't he was making some bad choices um by 1984 though his daughter dawn rick's older sister was addicted to drugs and richard senior was really kind of skirting the law a little bit more now than before so when he started to face potential jail time for some things he had done he was able to hedge some of that and flip it instead to become an informant for the fbi so he was going to be a paid informant here and there, uh, not a full-time guy, but he was going to be there some for the FBI. So he was able to 
kind of get out of that jail time, like I said. And this happens, right, BC? This is some work. I know you've done a lot of that kind of work. Yeah, and it's uh, we can talk later. I don't want to eat up too much time. But, yes, uh, basically you take people who are in situations and they can either work their charges off, uh, work like substantial, uh, or they can get paid for their time as a okay. source or an informant. So great point. Richard was going to be getting paid for his time as an informant. So he does this, but soon the FBI starts realizing something and they realize that they will have better luck and get loads more information and intel that they want if they instead enlist his 14-year-old son, Rick, to be their informant. So, mm. hey, Sam, back. Yeah. So uh, they realize that, you know... <sighs> Richard Worshey Sr. Let me, I'm going to pop out of the chats, guys. I won't see what you're saying. I'm going to pull up a couple of pictures here if I can. You know, they look at him and they're like, this guy doesn't fit in. Like, he's not going to stand on the corners. He's not going to get ingratiated into these drug rings. They're not going to trust him. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use him for this. So we have a picture. Let me get you a picture here of, um, I may not have one of dad on this particular thing but this here's little baby rick so the one on the left here is actually who they enlist as uh that's the 14 year old son he's not 14 in this picture but he's not far from it so that is white boy rick as he is known now there if you're looking guys if you're just listening he looks like basically any other dude in the 80s uh the hair the little you know, dirty little pencil mustache that he can grow in at, you know, as an adolescent, got a little suit on and a skinny tie. Um, so the FBI decides, you know what? No, we're going to use your 14 year old son, Rick. Now, the reason they do this is because Rick had not been in any kind of major trouble whatsoever, but he did kind of circle around some unsavory characters and living not very far from the Worshies was the Curry family. Remember, that's Johnny Curry, the head of this giant drug trafficking ring or suspected at the time, we know later to be true, who is also happens to be married to the mayor's niece. Well, Rick, he knew them. I mean, well enough. They were comfortable with him. He didn't really have a lot of dealings with them, but they knew him. He'd see him around. So since he was kind of known personally and trusted by them, the FBI thinks this is our this is our guy. So they put rick jr little guy in so <clears throat> excuse me federal agents and detroit police officers were working on combined federal and local drug task force all right and they taught rick the drug underworld they taught him everything to know about it he didn't know it yet you guys he was small time he was kind of a kid getting into a little bit of trouble but that was it uh very very small time they told him how it works uh, they gave him an ID, a fake ID, saying that he was 21. I'm going to continue to remind you guys, when this started with the FBI, he was 14 years old. Like, my 14-year-old cannot remember to put on clean socks half the time. If you're listening, buddy, it's okay. Um, they gave him a ton of cash. They put informant reports from Richard Sr. So they took the informant reports from his dad, all right? And they put his Rick's in his dad's FBI file. All right. So mm -hmm. it's not looked at on paperwork 
like Rick is the informant. They also have Rick, the son, use the code name Jim, G-E-M. That was the same code name as an informant that his father used. So for all purposes that we can see, if you were to look at a paper trail or talk to anyone, you only think that Rick's, Richard Sr. is still working as an informant. You don't understand that the juvenile, the minor, is the one doing this. And this was not um, done without their knowledge. They, 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 this was completely intentional. All right. So it does not take very long for this life, this life of an informant to really get the better of Rick. Uh, BC, real quick, what do mm. you know about when we look at drug and paid informants, especially when we're looking at a potentially large trafficking ring out of a city like Detroit, uh, mm -hmm. enlisting a minor, much less a 14 year old at that? Is this something that you've heard of or know of to happen? No, this would be the anomaly. I don't okay. I don't know that any departments would actually have a policy that would allow anybody under a certain age, probably 18 would be the youngest um, for most departments. I don't know how the FBI operated informants back then, uh, but for four, 14 is that, I, I mean, to me is absolutely crazy. So, I mean, a 14 year old can provide information maybe witness something, but to have them actively working like that sounds crazy. Absolutely. So it doesn't take long for him to really start to kind of like this. And when he was 15, uh, you guys just picture this, picture this for any of us now, but at 15, he went with the Curry family and was flown uh, in a jet to Vegas for a prize fight, right? Like, so now he's becoming more and more ingrained in their family because of the FBI and because of that, he's being treated to the luxuries they have from slinging this Coke and making all this money. And so of course he does, right? He now says that at that time he was quote blinded by that life. Of course he was. Uh, we've talked about this, but when he was, you know, I would, I'm going to couldn't, I'm going to call it a detachment from his mother twice. You know, we talked about that earlier, but I, I fully believe both of those times were pivotal. Uh, we've also got a dad who may or may not have been a bit heavy handed, may or may not have been super duper present. His sister was on drugs at that point. She's she seems to be sober and great now. That's wonderful. But, you know, if we're looking back at what his life looked like then. So he's going to go for this. He's making a ton of money. He's being accepted, just like we talked about. He's of course he is. I mean, this none of this surprises me. Right. So. He was giving the FBI, Rick was, regular intelligence on the Curry Drug Organization, including the murder of a 13-year-old boy. So we're going to, like, I'm going to give you a blip about that, and we're going to come right back to Rick. But this is very important in uh, illustrating the way the corruption started and showing the levels of how deep this goes, because it blew me away. If you didn't watch it, go back and listen to or watch, um, well... I'll, I'll figure out how to pull some of that and put it on here. But I did a case on boys on the track and that's talking about some corruption in Arkansas that potentially got as big as like Medellin and that Coke run and those kinds of things um, and higher and higher government. I don't believe this one got quite that high, but it gets higher than I realized or deeper than I realized. So there was a boy named Damian Lucas and it said that the Curry group did a drive by shooting to intimidate that boy's uncle. The child, as we know, this happens more frequently than we'd like to say, was riding his bike near his uncle's home and was collateral damage. So he was killed by accident in this shooting. 
Now, Rick was able to tell the FBI that Johnny Curry, because, you know, now they're spending all this time together, that Johnny Curry received a promise from Inspector Gil Hill. Now, we're going to talk about this guy. Gil Hill, that he shouldn't worry, that Gil was going to ensure the investigation was steered away from the Currys. So this is information that Rick could bring back to the FBI. Rick says that he overheard this on a speakerphone conversation between Johnny Curry and Gil Hill. Gil Hill repeatedly denied to reporters that he ever obstructed justice in the murder of Lucas, but an innocent man was actually arrested. I can fully say he's innocent because at this point he's been, those charges were dropped. But if you think about what this political climate looked like, at first he was um, completely pinned for this. I will stand by the fact that I think outside of somebody, if the feds hadn't been involved here at all, this innocent man would still be on the hook for this murder. And I have no doubt about that, but he was arrested and charged with the murder. The case was dropped though, because an FBI agent Groman told lawyers and the lawyers there and the judge that the FBI actually had a wiretap information indicating that a drug gang, they're talking about the Curry's did the killing. Okay. To this day though, no one has been prosecuted for this killing of this 13 year old boy. But as a result of Rick's tip, Gil Hill became a long-standing target for investigation of police corruption. Now, this is something to keep in mind. Now you've got um, the Curries that he's working with. I just I don't forget the size of the target on this 14-year-old boy's back. He's working for the largest drug trafficking ring in Detroit, um, like embedded fully in, in their lives. He is now, because of this, he is working with the feds and we already know the mayor has made it very outspokenly obvious that he doesn't like the feds. They're stool pigeons, right? So now he's almost because of that, a direct enemy of the mayor. And he already would be anyway, because the Curry's are involved. They are families now with the mayor. Right. And then on top of that, we have this investigator. He's not just an investigator. This guy, Gil Hill was the head of the homicide department um, of the Detroit police department. So now we have a tip that was given by Rick that now opens an investigation into Gil Hill because he promised that basically he's going to do some things, fudge some info, steer the investigation of that 13-year-old boy's murder away from that Curry family. Okay, so at every turn, this boy is amassing enemies on the FBI's dime. I can't say that enough. So Gil Hill eventually tried to rise in politics. Um, we could make a, a lot, we could take a lot of time talking about Gil. He doesn't really deserve it. In my opinion, I don't really care that much other than to say he's another, um, you know, just master abstract level of obstruction and, um, corruption actually in the police department there. But he eventually did become president of Detroit city council. He, at that time though, remember we talked about pop culture and in 1984, the movie Beverly Hills cop came out. Fun movie. Did you like it, BC? I loved it. Yeah, good movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Gil Hill, you can go back and watch Gil Hill in action because he actually played the role of Eddie Murphy's boss in that movie. The movie came out in 84. We are actually talking about 1984 currently. So he was kind of a local celebrity. He was already um, very politically elevated and known and intertwined with a lot of things. And now he kind of has this like local celeb status. He was in a big time movie there, you know, so he's kind of got a lot going on there. He did run for mayor. Eventually he was defeated. 
He died in 2016 at the age of 84 from pneumonia. Uh, but do not forget that he was the head of the homicide division, excuse me, from 1982 until 1989. So precisely this whole time that we're talking about and precisely during this huge push for the war on drugs. So Rick is getting more and more deeply embedded now in drug trafficking and the Curry's home. And this is all on the dime of the FBI. You guys, the FBI agent would go with him. Uh, remember, he had that fake ID on like a Saturday night, let's say, to some of these just run down. There are places you don't want to go in Detroit on a Saturday night. All right. Much less if you're 14, 15 years old. And he would go. Uh, now he's wearing... You know, he's wearing the minks and the the chains and the stuff. He's getting all these. He's getting a ton of money, but he's also getting, you know, these clothes and stuff from his, the Curry boys and just really enjoying that. I thought I might have a picture of some of the Currys here. I may not. Either way, so he's slinging money, all right? And he is getting more and more trusted by these guys and, and into their community. So uh, we've talked about it before, but I believe he said they asked him, you know, were you making like one of the interviews now that he's an adult said something just like, I don't know, like out of touch, like read the room. But he was like, you know, did you were you making more money than kids your age? And he was like, I was making more adult, more money than adults. I knew, you know, like we're talking this isn't little stuff. They were this was mm. big, heavy amounts of trafficking and he was getting a lot of money from it. Plus, he's getting paid from the FBI because he was an informant. He was providing crucial information. So now he's in his 15th year of life. This kid's already lived a lot more in 14 and a half, 15 years than a lot of us uh, ever actually care to. Rick found himself now at the Curry home. Uh, he's been there multiple times before, but he's back. So he gets there one night and it's a little different this time because while Rick didn't know it, Johnny Curry had actually started to get a feeling that there was a narc amongst them. All right. So Johnny had his friend Nub shoot Rick about five minutes after Rick got there. All right. Hmm. So he's 15 years old, y'all. 15. So Rick was shot point blank in the stomach with a 357. Rick laid on the floor. He's bleeding. He's gasping. He's begging them to call 911 and they refuse. Uh, more and more and more. They're, they're not going to do it. So he's going to die without this call. So thankfully for him. Kathy, Johnny's wife, the mayor's niece, walks in. When she sees what happened, she does immediately call for emergency help. The bullet had actually torn through Rick's large intestine. Uh, it nearly severed it. He would have died otherwise. Uh, he had emergency surgery to repair that injury. He actually left the hospital with a colostomy bag. Um, just a side note, a revision, which means that they were able to heal that wound surgically and take time for it to heal and work properly. So about a year and a half later, he was able to have the colostomy bag removed, but it was obviously um, very traumatic and a very serious injury. He has said since that he didn't have anyone to help him clean it really. Like he had to kind of figure it out. I think his words were, I had good skin. He's saying that because you can have skin breakdown. Just a lot of complications can arise if this isn't taken care of properly. And so he's 15, he's been shot in the belly and he's taking care of his own stuff like this pretty quickly. Um, so you might think that a child who has provided mounds of just invaluable information to the FBI 
and then has been shot and almost died, a near fatal wound, uh, they may want to go on and remove him from, from this operation, right? Like you think they're probably done with NBC. I think that they've gotten enough out of this kid, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can look at one of two ways. You can look at it as they've got enough out of him or they realized with him getting shot that everything gets exposed if what they were doing was not on their up and up by their policies. But either way, right. it's absolutely horrible. Oh, it is. It's yeah. horrible. So they, in fact, tell him to, quote, push that down. Just forget about getting shot. Keep your mouth shut. And now you're going to have more credibility. They're not wrong. Mm. Uh, if he doesn't speak, he gets shot by the Currys. He doesn't speak. He goes back to hang out with them. They've not told him they think he's a narc. He, obviously, we all know that's what they were thinking. That's why they shot him. But he gets shot at that young of age. And the Currys have come back to say, you can look up multiple interviews with Johnny Curry. All boys live in life now. He's retired. He doesn't do drugs anymore or sling them, he says. So it's an interesting situation. They've all, all got going on right now. But... He will say, like, yeah, no, this kid was a kid. So when he gets shot and he's that seriously wounded and he comes back and he's not spilled any names, like, absolutely, he had cred. We didn't think for a minute then that he was embedded. So he goes back to the life and he's actually supposed to be more in it now than ever before. Right. So he goes back to the nightclubs and street corners and back to the curries. So now they're all hanging out. All right, guys. So. Buckle up, get out your whiteboards and some expo markers. So thanks to Rick's informant work, the FBI was able to get permission for court authorized wiretaps and listening devices trained on Johnny Curry. So now they are listening to everything going on with the Curry family. All right. So finally, in 1986, the feds and the local cops on the task force quit taking Rick's calls. So he has been embedded for what, almost two years now, very pivotal years, formative years, 14 to 16, all right? And they drop him. They're done with him. And that's about that's about how this goes. Um, they, no, they no longer needed him to bust the curries. They've already got what they need there, so they ended their ties with him. Rick thinks that it's because someone kind of higher up got wind of the fact that they were running a juvenile informant and ordered an end to it. You had a bit of a different perspective, BC, when we've spoken on this before. Yeah, uh, when you, you when you get into that with that age, um, you got to I don't know. It's it, it is you you have an informant that has now been shot. Uh, if informants get outed, obviously, right, it can be uh, d just direct violence. So with with that and and then being exposed i don't i don't know how they get around that and then the the whole idea and i don't want to jump the gun so mm. I, i'll save some of that but the idea of discovery when an informant does provide information is directly related to a crime mm -hmm. that information can be released and i don't know in 84 how the rules were but they are now where mm -hmm. information has to be released and then once that information gets released they're exposed then they're they're definitely uh, out and violence will occur. Right. Yeah. So however it happened or for whatever reason, they're done with them. They don't need him. So at this point, Rick has dropped out of school. He's been drug thug. He's been informant. He's 16, y'all. He's not had a proper education at this point. I mean, he did the first few years. 
Um, but he hasn't in the past couple of years. He is now, he, you know, he's not been a child. He's not been probably, I would venture to say since he was probably around nine years old, he's not, um, learned how to commingle with peers his age. These are not the things he was doing. And then most certainly he, he's gone above and beyond. You know, again, we go back to the, the prize fight in Vegas, the the mink coats, the whatever. The dude's got money. He's 16, though. You spoke on frontal lobe earlier. He is not even close to that frontal lobe, yeah. which we know affects personality and decision making and these kinds of things. Not even close to that being, you know, um, fully formed. And now he's got nothing. So what does anybody even expect him to do? I'm not sure what we're to expect of him. He yeah. goes home. I'm not certain his sister's. Um, I, I still think, well, no, I know sister was still, drugs were still prevalent in her life. Um, dad kind of was or wasn't there, was or wasn't heavy handed at this point. Who really knows? Um, I will say there are differing accounts of whether or not dad was okay with his son. Cause that's actually a question you need to think about, right? Was dad okay with his son doing this? Do you have to sign off on a minor doing this? Actually, that's now what I'm that saying. I'm saying this. I, yeah, I don't, I, because you can't work minors. I, I'm saying my personal experience. I don't know sure. any department that will work somebody 14 or 16. Um, so I guess but, my question yeah. is if they were putting his information like that, he mm -hmm. gleaned from the Curry's, if he, they were putting his information down under his dad's name and his mm -hmm. code name was the same as his dad's name, was that two things? Was that because they weren't getting permission from dad and, or because they couldn't let higher ups know that they were invoking a minor to be. Uh, uh, yeah. I would assume it would have to be that way to where they're they're kind of masking the fact that the information yeah. is coming from Just keeping that quiet. Yeah. So basically on on paper, it looks like this is the information. I mean, if the son was sitting there talking to the dad and then the dad's the only person that has contact with the FBI, then then that's that. that you know what I mean? But it sounds like and what you're saying is that they had direct contact with him and they had full contact with, 14, with him. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're taking so, him to these clubs and like they are dad I think was almost out of the picture in terms okay, of their yeah. in terms of their dealings with Rick. So there are mm -hmm. accounts that say that when he was in the hospital and shot that his father uh actually got into a fist fight, got into a physical altercation with an FBI agent because he said like I'm done, like get my kid out of this. I don't want him involved mm -hmm. in this any longer. I don't want, you know. But I will say we're going to move forward with the case, but um, there are more than a few times we're going to see where people were either um, uh, bribed or extorted or threatened. Uh, I've not read yet that that's something that happened. But if dad had an altercation and was upset and was mad that his son was in this and wanted him out, but then he continued to do it after the shooting, it does make you wonder dad had already been in a little bit of trouble. If maybe mm -hmm. there had been some, you know, a little twisting of the arm there, a mm -hmm. little, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But, uh, so that's where we're at now. And so then what was he going to do? So he actually decides in 1986, Rick does to become what's called a weight man. This is a cocaine wholesaler at 16 years old, y'all 16. But his association with the Curry brothers actually enabled him to make these kinds of connections in the drug underworld. So he had bigger, higher, deeper level connections there than uh, any of his counterparts, much less even just the, the guys slinging dope on the street. So 
One of these guys that he had a connection to was named Art Derrick. So Art Derrick flew cocaine in on his fleet of airplanes from Miami to Detroit. All right. So he's actually the guy that first coined the term white boy Rick before this. So this is not a name. And I think it's important you know this because uh, Rick will say this now. He did not name himself this. Uh, he will now say to you, like, I am not white boy Rick. Like that dude died off years ago. That was not me. That's what was given to me. And he and he's he admittedly will say he's not an angel. He's not saying that he was a saint in all of this. He was caught up in it. You know, he's also a child. This is why we don't let children make certain decisions because they can get caught up in things they don't need to be caught up in. Um, but so this Art Derrick guy who flew this these fleet of planes and flew in all this coke from Miami to Detroit gave him the name white boy Rick. And he says later he testifies at some point that he knew two Ricks. One was white and one was black. And he called the black Rick Maserati Rick because of the car he drove. And he called Rick Wershey white boy because of his age and his race. So that's how he got the name white boy Rick. And as you can imagine, the name eventually gets leaked. And so we all know guys, we talk about uh, serial murders all the time. We talk about things like this. Nicknames and taglines are just fodder for the media and for headlines. And so uh, white boy Rick caught on, as you can imagine, when you're looking at the drug rings in Detroit, uh, not only did he physically stand out, but he stood out by name and that name rang through the news outlets. Uh, by now, though, Johnny Curry was in jail awaiting trial. Remember, they had all this info. Thank you to Rick to be able to obtain the wiretap to be able to get Johnny Curry arrested. So he is arrested. He is currently sitting in jail awaiting his own trial. So at this time, his wife, Kathy, mayor's niece, comes to Rick and suggests maybe they have a little little thing going on. Maybe they have a mm. little affair. All right. <laughs> so she's a pretty lady. She's wearing these mink coats. She's 24 years old. She's like high dollar to Rick. She, you know, all these things. She's this grown woman. He's 17. She doesn't know that though. Remember he has a fake ID. Uh, she has no mm. idea that he's this 17 year old kid who actually flipped her husband. And that's why her husband's in jail. No one knows this. Uh, keep in mind too. Don't let it be lost that. Rick could supply the Coke that Kathy very much so wanted to mm. have in her possession. All right. Uh, BC at any point that you want to, you can just hop in and ask any questions. Don't let me railroad you here. Yeah, that's all right. Go ahead. But now Kathy Curry has police protection as a member of the mayor's family. You guys, this goes beyond like, Oh, my uncle's the mayor, sir. Can I get my speeding ticket? It's not like that. We're talking protection out of this world. So this included keeping her out of trouble, ranging from traffic tickets to criminal investigations. So police contacts actually kept her informed of any investigations that might involve her or any of those close to her. Hint, hint, the Curry family. The Federal Drug Task Force, <clears throat> excuse me, operatives discovered this when they raided her. You guys just... Picture, picture this. I sound like Sophia from Golden Girls, but picture this. When they raided her home and found Detroit police narcotics investigative reports in her home, mm. in Kathy, now Curry's home, they found private, a laminated card that had the private unlisted phone numbers of top ranking police officers at her home. 
So let's make this a little sillier. Rick is there. So Rick is there in the bed when the FBI raids her home. He keeps his mouth shut. They don't find drugs and they leave. But Rick, but Rick is, uh, he's, he keeps quiet. But remember, just because she's getting raided by the FBI does not mean these were the same FBI agents that flipped him as an informant, right? Right. So yeah. informant work is super compartmentalized. I'm sure you can speak on that. They, these guys don't know that he's anything about right. Rick. He's just a dude yeah. in the bed. Mm-hmm. And, inf- right. and informants are told, don't you don't tell every officer or agent you encounter, hey, I'm an informant, I work for someone, unless you absolutely have to. So it would make sense. Well, and he certainly couldn't quiet. there, right? He's in bed right. with the wife yeah. of the man he got flipped. So yeah. Yeah. for yeah. a lot of reasons, he had to keep that mouth mm-hmm. shut. So uh, just real quick on a funny side note, Imperial Girl said it's the quietest she's ever heard you on a podcast, BC. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> maybe he, he met his match so in may of 19 i just want i just want your show to be on time that's all so i'm not going to keep interrupting oh it's on time it's we got going that's Perfect. all that we need to do right so i got a lot of talking to do afterwards okay all right like once you get through this story <laughs> in may of 1987 at 17 years old um he's near his family home and there was a like quote routine police stop with rick uh, I think the story goes that he kind of did like a slow roll through a stop sign. If look, if that gets you jammed up, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. I've never done that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so they, they stop him. It was quickly followed by like police that were waiting there. They were waiting for a signal. So they had had their eye on Rick at this point a little bit. All right. There was a bit of a scuffle that involved the Worshi family. And what they mean is that his sister Dawn was with him at the time. Um, so a cop says that he spotted a shopping bag full of cash on the floorboard of the car. So Rick's sister Dawn grabs the cash. She ran into her grandparents' home. So they live really close down the street where this traffic stop happened. Dawn was still on drugs at the time again. So there's a little bit of that going on. Close by, though, Rick was able to get away, but he was soon taken into custody. I think there was a bit of a heavy scuffle because he was hospitalized after his, like, once he went into um, detainment. The police later claimed that he went to a neighbor's backyard. Hear me here, guys. The police say he went to a neighbor's backyard. So he goes through the traffic stop. He kind of gets away from the scuffle with cops. He kind of escapes, but they say he walked away. They say that he went to this neighbor's backyard to stash a box under a porch containing over 17 pounds of cocaine. Even though his fingerprints were not found on the box, they were not found on the packages of cocaine inside the box. Nor did he have the box with him when he left the scuffle, nor was he wearing gloves. None of this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is his arrest. He is arrested on this charge. There was the scuffle and they say his, like the, like, you know, the PC was finding the cash in the front floorboard, like this inordinate amount of cash. They get out, they scuffle, he walks away. They then say that this is what he does. We don't have any other reports of him doing that or of people seeing him carrying 17 pounds of cocaine. This is not a small yeah. amount of cocaine. All right, guys. So there was a new law at the time, and this is very important. It was called the 650 lifer. Remember how earlier 
We said that they were treating during the war on drugs, particularly during the early and mid 80s, they were treating drug offenses more more harshly than the violent crimes in a lot of ways. And this is one of them. So this new law was called the 650 Lifer. This mandated that anyone that was convicted of possessing more than 650 grams of cocaine, even with no violent charges, would be given life without the possibility of parole. So police claimed that he had almost eight kilograms, to be specific, 7,711 grams. <clears throat> he was not charged with any violence. Also know that in 1992, real quick, we're going to fast forward, because in 1992 in Michigan, a Supreme Court ruled that the 650 law was not consistent with the prohibition of cruel or unusual punishment and deemed it unconstitutional. I will tell you, we'll move forward. I'll give you a teaser. He was in jail for the same offense moving forward in 1992. And when that happened, that that law was turned over, uh, it did not in any kind of way affect his sentence. Okay. Also, um, at this time, if you guys remember uh, Tim Allen, the actor, right? Tim, the Toolman Taylor, Buzz Lightyear, you name it, all the things he's done, right? So in 1978, Tim Allen uh, was arrested. We've all, I think a lot of us have seen his mustache uh, or his mustache, his mustache and his shaggy hair and his mugshot is what I was going to say. He had exactly 650 grams of Coke on him. So he made the mark for this 650 lifer law, right? So he had exactly 650 grams of Coke and he served two years and four months. So just to give you kind of an idea of even though that that was the mandate that you would serve life in prison without the possibility of parole, often people were able to kind of argue it down plea it down or do whatever. So at this time when he's arrested, Rick, he hires a very experienced defense attorney. This guy's name is Buffalino. So you're going to hear me say Buffalino, Buffalino, I'm not sure. You're going to hear me say his name um, many times in the next little bit. So Buffalino, though, uh, gets his case and is starting to do well for him. He's making some pretrial motions. He has a plan in place. And I think he didn't think much of it. This is a 17-year-old with kind of a – this case isn't really, uh, you know, set in stone. We're not – we're not going to hang this one up and, and know that he's going to be convicted here. This is kind of interesting. So we know, though, that early on he pushed, he, Rick, pushed Buffalino aside at the urging of Kathy Curry. So the one he's been in bed with, uh, Johnny Curry, the drug leader's wife, the mayor's niece. She tells Rick that her family told her that he needs black attorneys to represent him in the drug trial. So at Kathy's urging, Rick says that he hired two black attorneys. He obviously made it a bad mistake, not because they're black, but because they were not, in fact, on his side. Ed Bell and Sam Gardner were their names. Um, well, I can't say they weren't on their side, but listen to what happens. So both lawyers were in Major, Mayor Young's group of associates. Yes, the same Coleman Young, her uncle. They are kind of swimming in his circles. We don't want to swim in his circles. So when Bell, one of the defense attorneys, takes over, for Buffalino, he immediately, his first act as a lawyer for Rick is to withdraw Buffalino's pretrial motion that challenged the drug evidence in Rick's arrest. So let me explain to you what that means. Buffalino made that motion and it makes sense because his 
fingerprints were not on the drugs. And we've talked about this before. People do things at the beginning of a trial or a case, uh, throw out anything they can uh, to see what sticks to suppress evidence. Right. Would you say that's true, BC? Yes. A hundred percent. That's the defense's job. Yeah. Right. So they're going to do everything they can. Uh, also facts, right? We do know at least now we don't know that it wasn't his for sure, but we do know that if they were arresting him on this charge for this reason, his fingerprints were not on the drugs. So if you withdraw that evidence suppression motion, like his new defense attorney did, this now leaves him without an issue to appeal if he was convicted. Mm. He was convicted. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in Rick's one and only parole hearing in 2003, Buffalino, his former defense attorney, testified under oath that in his opinion, Bell and Gardner, they're both dead now, deliberately made sure that Rick had no basis for an appeal of the conviction that would keep him locked up for good. They, quote, hung this boy out to dry. Buffalino told the parole board. All right. Mm. <clears throat> Significantly, no one from the FBI, the federal task, the federal drug task force or the U.S. attorney's office in Detroit stepped up to help Worshi in this case uh, to do so would have required them to admit that they had used a juvenile. Now, you did speak on this before that they mm. may not step up to help because an informant can't be made known. Correct. Well, yeah, he, if he's in that case, he is the suspect. So if they step up and out him, then it, it could potentially be direct violence for him. So, I mean, I, I don't know. That's, that's their thing is they can't out him. Is there a way, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to, um, I guess not publicly or per, per like court document out him, but plead to the judge somehow in quiet that like, Hey, he worked for us. He gave us mounds of information because of his information. We were able to secure this drug ring and charge them. Like, can they do that quietly to where he's not technically like outed? Yeah. I mean, they can like um, use a before trial, all that kind of discussion goes on. Um, and probably what you're thinking is like, could he, if he's found guilty, get a sentence reduction right. based on the fact. And usually the only way you get a sentence reduction is if they're doing direct work for that case. In other words, he gets okay. charged, he pleads guilty and then says, I will work substantial. And, and the defense and the prosecutors agree on multiple cases. And then he actively works from then on. Ugh. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. because that's true. I mean, I understand that, like, I guess, per the law, but there are so many extenuating circumstances here. They also had a minor, which was unprecedented and probably well, not lawful. Yeah. They also had, you know what I right. mean? Like, they mm -hmm. let this boy hang out to dry at 16, and now he gets potentially some trumped up charges. I mean, even if they were legit, there was no violence associated. And, okay. I mean, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, and I don't know the team that arrested him would be the, the same team that had worked the Curry brothers. Correct, and yeah, likely not, but I guess at some point you're catching wind of this dude because because keep it, I may not have made this clear as well. The timeline between when the FBI dropped him as an informant and he gets pulled over and gets mm -hmm. jammed up on these charges, we're talking weeks. This was not a long yeah. time, and they had their eye on him. Like, well local i guess local authorities did because he's been swimming in these circles and they wouldn't know he was an informant but 
you know, I guess I would, and maybe I'm completely wrong in thinking this, but I would think that um, somehow people seem pretty interconnected in Detroit at this time, that somehow mm -hmm. his arrest and then a trial that he's going to go on would make noise. Like someone who was involved in him being an informant would know about it. Yeah. And I can see the chats. I just can't respond. But I think want, in the chats there. Uh, what's that? No, I said respond verbally if you want. Yeah, there was there was a comment earlier that had basically addressed the fact of him being a white man and then saying, well, uh, a, a traffic stop with 17 kilos or whatever is not always the average. Like you just don't just roll around with that much weight, which is correct. That's the only reason I say that maybe a, a separate team may have been working him knowing like, oh, this guy's a drug dealer. And back then, they may not have had the best deconfliction. Nowadays, that a lot of units and agencies deconflict so they don't step on one another's investigations. But it may be that another team was working him or another unit, and they start following him or they start tracking him, and they get that information that he's heavy that day if, in fact, that, that's those, that amount of drugs was actually his. It sounds like, though, in the, in, from what you're saying, you don't have prints. You don't have witnesses with him running with, you know, a package after the car stop. Yeah, but um, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like, so it's not that um, when that was said, if they like. It's not that they stopped him and he had 17 pounds on him. I understand how that would cause every kind of eyebrow to raise. They stopped him and saw cash. So he's heavy cash mm -hmm. flow wise in the front floorboard. They did not, from all reports, find Hey, Bosco, they did not from all reports find the drugs in the floorboard or in the car. In fact, the scuffle ensued when they try to get the cash. The sister takes the cash, runs off to grandparents' house down the street. He mm -hmm. gets away during this. They catch up with him later. So later they catch up with him. And then they're pinning these drugs that are buried under the neighbor's porch on him. Maybe they were his. Maybe mm -hmm. they weren't. But that's not what they saw in the car. So they can't, there's not been a link to him having these drugs other than that they say that yeah, those I, were his yeah. drugs. Right. That's what I was saying. So, so if the unit does the stop, like a pretextual stop, or they do a stop for the minor traffic um, offense, and then it works up from there, but none of the officers or none of the citizens can say, yeah, he's running with a pack. I mean, 17 right. kilos is a lot. I mean, worst case scenario, or not even worst case scenario, just a, a good defense or a good counter would be whatever address that, that he ran to and they recovered the drugs. Was that house linked to drug activity? I mean, yeah. in the worst situations that it's not even his drugs, potentially he just right. runs and then they find the drugs and go, well, he had to have them on him because he's a drug dealer right. and we're working. Well, okay. So let's not get more in the weeds with that. I will continue to lay this out. No, and then you guys all, all, all of y'all decide what you think, uh, Moving forward, uh, I try not to have my mind made up <laughs> when we do stuff like this, but this one is this one's been bugging me the past couple of weeks a lot. Um, so we know that his two new defense attorneys immediately do things not in his favor. I'm not sure why any defense attorney would do that, by the way, like regardless of if you know him or not. Right. Why would you go in and remove this pretrial motion to suppress this evidence when, if anything, it would just be in his favor? Uh yeah, I don't know. It's like they're doing the opposite of their job. So they, let's see here. Where are we? Boom, 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 boom. All right. So they, 
no one came forward, whatever, to say he had been an informant. That's fine. We'll put that one to the side, not worry about that too much. But he went on to trial and he had a one week trial based on the stuff we were just talking about. It lasted one week as a minor, a 17 year old, y'all. Let's keep that in, in, in mind as well. And he was convicted by a jury and sentenced to life in prison per that 650 lifer mandate. Um, much time later, Rick's parole hearing, Buffalino, remember his original defense attorney, testified under oath that he received, oh, you guys, get ready for this. He received a personal warning from Mayor Coleman Young to stay out of the Rick Worshi case. Uh, he says, quote, I was personally told by Coleman Young, stay out of this. This is bigger than you think it is. Buffalino testified. He went on to speculate in his testimony to the board that Young... Coleman Young, the mayor, may have been trying to protect his brother-in-law, who is Kathy's father, and Kathy is married to the drug lord, all right? So even after Rick went to prison, the FBI asked him for help. I will say, guys, he has said in interviews since that he, you know, looks back on this and is like, why in the world did I help them, right? Like, why did I do that again? He was 17. Again, he's not going to make ideal choices, and, and mm. who wouldn't? What do you do? He's 17, just sentenced to life in prison. And the FBI comes greasing some wheels, I'm sure, with some promises. If you help us out, you know, whatever. So the FBI, okay, guys, listen in, all right? The FBI asks him for his help around, it's about 1990 now. And the FBI requests that he tell Kathy Curry so they want Rick to tell Kathy, which he had had this affair with, that one of his trusted associates, if you will, from Miami needed police protection. So he goes to Kathy. He's like, hey, hey, one of my guys down in Miami needs some protection. She knows exactly what he's talking about. And she has the protection, right? So the connect was actually an undercover FBI agent that posed as this big time Miami drug dealer. Kathy, in turn, introduces this undercover FBI agent, Mike, who's posing as this other guy, to her dad, Willie. Willie then takes this agent and uh, introduces him to the various Detroit police officers that were willing to take bribes to provide protection mm -hmm. for what they believed were drug and cash shipments through Detroit. So the FBI, again was able to find a link and this corruption inside the actual Detroit PD. All right. So one of the cops, Willie tapped uh, Kathy's father for help was, or excuse me, that he, that Rick tapped for help was Sergeant James Harris. James Harris was a member of mayor Coleman Young's security detail. So he's one that was willing to take money uh, in turn for some protection for somebody that he thinks is bringing drugs in from Miami. All right. So they also brought his friend. Oh, look who's back. Gil Hill in to the undercover sting operation. Oh, mama. Mm, mm. Oh, mama. It doesn't end. Right. So eventually Gil Hill grows suspicious, though, and he backs out because he's kind of trying to grow bigger in the political scene. And I think he's starting to realize like, oh, like. He's still incredibly corrupt. Don't worry about that. He just can't have his name out there more than he would prefer. All right. But Willie, who was Kathy's father, um, that Sergeant Harris 
and nearly a dozen police officers were indicted and convicted. Gil Hill was by now a major Detroit politician. And when Willie and the cops were indicted in that sting that was set up with Rick's info again, Rick has helped at every turn. These are big stings, y'all. This is multiple police officers, investigators. We've got drug rings. I mean, he's his information has taken down a lot. And so with his help, it had to be clear to Gil Hill that the FBI had been after him for five years as a result of Rick's work as a paid confidential informant. So now we have the Gil mm. Hill target on his back. Like now it's, there's no doubt about it. Gil knew, knew what was up. All right. In a sworn affidavit, one of the Detroit police officer witnesses who testified at the parole hearing of Rick said that he had spoken with Gil Hill. He stated under oath that Gil had been involved in planning the witness lineup that testified against Rick's parole. Okay. Mm -hmm. Rick made enemies on both of both Mayor Coleman Young and investigator Gil Hill, two of the most powerful politicians in Detroit. So when Rick had his parole review, we don't have much longer, guys. This has been kind of a long one. But when Rick had his parole review in 2003, the Wayne County prosecutor, Mike Duggan, sent a letter to the Michigan Parole Board opposing his release, said that Rick was a gang leader and a violent kingpin who intimidated witnesses who just disappeared. The letter also accused Rick of operating a criminal enterprise. This is one inmate that needs to remain in prison for his entire life, this guy says. For his entire life, y'all. Duggan became eventually mayor of Detroit. He was a protege of the Wayne County executive when Coleman Young was mayor. So now we have this guy in 2003 saying he needs to stay in prison for life. And then we find out he has ties to Coleman Young, the mayor from back in the 80s. All right. Oh, my gosh. Um, We know that he was charged in federal... um, state or state and federal court with participating in narcotics conspiracy. But the crimes associated with being a drug Lord are far from true. All right. Rick was never named as a defendant conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator witness in any federal or state drug prosecutions. Uh, Veteran Detroit criminal defense attorney, Steve Fishman said that white boy, Rick Worshi never came up as a figure in the big drug drug trafficking trials of that era either. Um, Moving forward, eventually Rick got in a little trouble. Listen to this. Okay. This blows my mind too. So he goes to, he's in federal prison in Florida and he gets in trouble for trying to buy a car for his mother and sister with the help of a friend on the outside. Like it was something he was not supposed to be doing. Okay. So he also tried to arrange for his sister to sell four used cars to raise money to get back to his mom. It turned out to be like a car theft ring and a, like a title fraud scheme. Still, mm-hmm. please keep in mind, not violent. But that's what this ultimately turned into. Um, mm-hmm. A Florida prosecutor told Rick that he would charge his mother and sister if he didn't plead guilty, that they would be implicated on this. So mm-hmm. he did, and he got a five-year sentence on top of the life sentence that he was already serving. Okay? Others in the same case that the same thing that he was charged with in Florida got probation and restitution. 
y'all. Probation mm. or they didn't even see jail time for this. Someone in the chat is saying 2003 wasn't that long ago, especially if he's still in power. It was not that long ago. But also think about this all started in the 80s. So for Rick, a long time had gone. He's still getting repercussions from the stuff in the 80s. These bad guys, so to speak, these politicians and whatever, this has followed him. So it says, um, when asked, why did you receive a harsher sentence? He says the prosecutor asked him in a conversation, what in the world did he do to make authorities in Michigan so mad at him? Mm. Mm. Meaning they mm. are now still following him in prison in Florida. The implication was that Michigan authorities intervened to ensure that Rick received a harsh sentence. An article in the Detroit Free Press reported that, quote, the arrest come after a two-year investigation dubbed Operation Roadrunner that included cooperation from the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. So they were still embedded. He is in Florida. This is a whole different charge, and they are still vying for this man to never get out of prison. All right, we're going to start to wrap it up, but today Johnny Curry, the head of that ring, is living comfortably in retirement. He publicly campaigned for where she's released. Uh, Rick's release in recent years. Um, so did this dude. There's a gang called the Best Friends Gang. And he was a hitman. This guy named Nate. All right. Big dude. He is admittedly, he, well, he's charged with and admits to at least 30 murders um, in the drug in the drug world. And one of these contracts as a hitman that he this guy Nate got uh, <laughs> was, excuse me, let me see here. <laughs> was from Gil Hill himself. So he's saying that mm. one of his 30, out of his 30 mm -hmm. murders, one of his hits he got or requests he got was from Gil Hill. And he says, quote, I was told to kill white boy Rick. He said, 125,000. I'll make sure you get it as long as that boy is dead. His keyword, dead. He said 125000 to make sure that boy is dead. We can't have him talking exact words. We can't have him talking. And that's what this guy has said from prison. Like, he's never leaving prison. Um, and this is what this, this guy from this gang says that Gil Hill, again, the investigator on the case, said to him about putting out a hit on Rick. Rick, where she was released from prison finally in July of 2020. Y'all, 2020. Um, we actually reached out to Rick uh, before this. Uh, he was kind and got back pretty quickly. Uh, there has already been a documentary made. And then I believe in 2018, there was an actual major motion picture, a film made where Matthew McConaughey starred as Rick's father uh, in, excuse me, in the movie. He has denied, Rick has denied that he took any money from the proceeds of that movie. He was very polite. He said that he appreciates that this is being um, covered. Uh, but he couldn't get on the show tonight because he is swamped. He is actually working on a second documentary now about it. He actually filed a lawsuit a couple of years ago where he is he filed a lawsuit against the FBI and the Detroit Police Department to the tune of, I think, $100 million, whatever. But his claimant was um, child abuse. Um, there were a few other things, but ultimately that's what his claim comes down to is that they, um, that, that it boils down to child abuse, what happened to him from them and that he was a minor and all of these things. Um, sadly as of, I think it was, what it was this week, two, three days ago, they finally got, um, got a verdict on that and he was not able to, it got dismissed. 
the judge there, this woman case, something or other, uh, basically said that like his time had come and passed, that he had had plenty of time to file that if he felt like that was the case. Uh, why would he wait so long? Y'all, he was in prison until three years ago. So I, I'm not mm. saying he couldn't have done it from prison, but he's had a minute to reflect. Okay. So, uh, and that was the basis on her dismissal of that, of his claim was that he had had enough time. And basically like, I think her words essentially were like, you're not that upset. Like, had you been at that upset, you would have filed earlier. Mm. Um, oh my goodness. So I don't know. I was happy to reach out to him. I do hope to get him, uh, on, uh, at some point soon ish. Um, I'm, I'm glad that they're making another documentary. I'll tell you, like at the end of the day, I try to be really open-minded. I try not to come to conclusions. I try to understand that I don't know everything that happened. I don't know all the details. I, okay. Someone in the chats is saying that they are surprised. They're saying uh, that he didn't get killed. He was put in wet sack. He was put in witness protection in prison. I think that's the only thing done right by this man was that, um, so he, he was kind of separated in that sense. Uh, but, and, and what, what if he did file and it was blocked by the same people? I look that at this point, of course that could have happened. I don't know, but, uh, I don't know this, this judge's ties. I haven't looked into her yet, but, um, I don't know what say UBC, because I'll tell you what I'm heartbroken and I think it's disgusting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I do believe it's the anomaly. I don't know that there will be another case like this with a 14, you know, 15-year-old working cases like that and being that involved or getting into the allegations of uh, corruption and uh, people threatening, um, you know, attorneys and stuff. I it's, it's crazy, and I can see how they would make a movie out of it, even though yeah. I haven't seen the movie. Um, but yeah, it just, uh, sadly, um, it, it's one of those things where if, if you didn't have the drug game, you wouldn't have this. And I think in the eighties, that was the big push was if we just go hard, then we can get rid of the drug problem. But obviously we know yeah, now but this turns because the, like the people implicated in this wanted the drug problem to continue. I mean, we're talking like the, the ones in terms of the local police department and you know, mayoral candidates and yeah. things like that. Right. Like there's, a yeah, yeah, the yeah. Yeah. So I just mean like in general across the board, like with the, the just say no. And this, there was a certain idea right. that we can get rid of the drug problem. If we go really, really hard on the kingpins or the, right. That was the term used back then, you know, but the, the big, the big homies, the ones who are running things. Yeah. And that you just got to go at different angles, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's bizarre. Um, some of the twists and turns in it with that as well. Just that's crazy. And it would be incredible if he got on the show and you got to talk to him by the way. Well, do you think that he deserves or that life in prison was the sentence that is just for his crime? No. I, and, and uh, for me to look at it now and say, okay, you're talking about a juvenile who's not linked to any, well, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs of their sure. initial investigation for violence, but as far as I know, I didn't hear that he was a lead suspect in multiple shootings or uh, had there's already never been committed. any indication yeah. that there was any violence. In fact, it says the opposite. Everything says, uh, no violent crimes, no violent crimes, no, vi at every turn. 
Yes. So, yeah, I, I would say, uh, yes, it's absolutely bizarre that someone would get 30 years for just solely a, a drug possession charge like that. Yeah, I don't. It, it and is. And then the extra that's, five, that's you know, for that weird car, whatever. Ultimately, yeah. he served 32 and a half years. He's in his early 50s now. Um, you know, the good news is he does have a lot of life ahead of him, but he, you know, you know, his dad has passed away since, um, I think from cancer, I believe his sister is still mm -hmm. around. Um, so anyway, I don't know, go take a look at the documentary or the movie though. You guys see what you think, look into this stuff you can find. It's interesting though. I, I will say, um, he and Johnny Curry, the one who shot him, mm -hmm. the one that they was, uh, are like, quote, like buddies now. I think the documentary kind of reunited them. They're seeing each other now that he's been out of prison. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is, but, um, I don't know. Mm. I, I just, I, I look at a child who I feel like starting at five, a lot of trauma happened and then come 14, he's in the drug world on the FBI's dime. So I feel like yeah. any logical decision or anything like that past the age of 14, I can hardly call yeah. his and it, um, I think that's where it gets very difficult. So, you know, yeah, sadly there are a lot of 14 year olds in that same lifestyle. They just aren't being informants you know right what I mean? right yeah. exactly well bc it's so good to see you i know that's not your normal uh studio that's not your normal backdrop <laughs> i don't think it's no a, this a wing is... chair and blinds yeah this was uh literally well you know about a 30 second creation i think i was still adjusting the chair uh <laughs> we <went live. laughs> I'll wait fix should problem. we should we tell them a little something no don't tell them anything <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, go ahead. Just a little bit. Uh, yeah. So we've got <laughs> <laughs> we've got some things in the works, y'all. So, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm moving forward with night shift, and I'm pumped about it. I'm looking for just better and better shows. Uh, you know, as as each week goes, we're I'm now into like the second year of night shift, and uh, and I'm loving it. I'm loving the way it's going at this point. Uh, BC and Ski are kicking it with disruptors and doing their thing and doing great over there and having some amazing guests. So on top of that, not in <laughs> instead of, but on top of those right, two, yeah. we are going to add a new show uh, with BC and I. So he and I are going to come yes. out with our own show, and uh, the the title is yet to be determined. So should we let should we give it to the public to vote? Yeah, tell them tell them to start shooting some. You tell ideas them to us. you're here. Oh yeah, I guess I here's <laughs> your show though. <laughs> yeah, if if people will send suggestions for uh the title of our show and some of the things they would want to hear us talk about too. Yeah. Because we talk yeah. constantly. We talk a lot, so we might <laughs> as well lot. just do it on air. And y'all yeah. can choose to listen to it or not, I guess. Yes, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so we've got some working titles that we're playing around with, but, uh, yeah, you guys, you guys, uh, send us some, we'd love it. You can send it to disruptors or tonight shift either way, uh, go on and you can follow BC over at the disruptors podcast with BC and ski. That's their Instagram. He has his own BC Sanders Instagram and their YouTube channel is of the same name. And, um, of course you can follow me with Andrea Uplate on the YouTube channel, same on Instagram. Y'all, I hate saying all this stuff, and I know everybody says it on all the podcasts and all this stuff. It's like, and you have to, 
And I'm going to yeah. say, please hit subscribe. Cause like you have to, like if mm -hmm. this, if this stuff, you know, now that, um, like, you know, I was at some point had some things going where I had some sponsorships. I don't now. And I, so we're trying to make that happen again and it will, it will. But so just when you can hit subscribe, I'll tell you what, now that I listen to podcasts, now that I get it, uh, when I listen to a new one, I just hit subscribe. I hit like, I just, mm -hmm. you know, unless I, unless it's just abhorrent and I hate it. Like if I like it yeah. at all, I'm going to hit it because I understand why it matters now, but we appreciate you guys. We love you guys. Um, I think you might have some new merch coming up soon, BC. Um, I know I'm about to drop some more t-shirts. Any of you that yes. ordered the last ones, um, they'll be coming out soon. And again, yeah, follow us, uh, send us your, your questions, comments, like engage with us. We enjoy both of us. We'll talk your heads off. So we would, <laughs> yeah. we would love it. But, um, as far as tonight, I'm going to sign off. Thank you, BC, for being here with me. I really appreciated uh, this you. show, your co-hosting abilities. And uh, maybe we can get you to sing a line on the next one. But, uh, guys, <laughs> yeah. until next time, we will see y'all next Tuesday. Maybe. Y'all, it takes me a while to get this turned off. <laughs> Just bear with me. Sing a song, hold hands. Good. Let me sing some Brooks and Dunn. Please do. <laughs> <laughs>